Thanks everyone for joining our program today on student loans and bankruptcy. Uh, my name is Donald Lastman. Bankruptcy Judge Joan Feeney and I are co-chairs of the Bankruptcy Section's Strategic Thought Leadership Committee that organized this program. Uh, many thanks to Noah Williams and the Boston Bar Association for all the work they've done in supporting and promoting the program. I also want to recognize the Bankruptcy Section's Education and Consumer Law Committees and their chairpersons, John Summerstein and Marcus Pratt, for all their support and assistance. Now, a few words about our panelists. Uh, the Honorable Hannah L. Blumensteel was appointed by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of California in San Francisco on February 11th, 2013. John Rayo is a senior attorney with the National Consumer Law Center, focusing on consumer credit, mortgage servicing, and bankruptcy issues. Austin Hinkle is senior counsel at the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection's Office of Supervision Policy. Austin recently completed a detailed assignment as senior advisor to the Undersecretary of the Department of Education, where he led the department's engagement with DOJ in drafting and implementing the 2022 bankruptcy guidance that is the topic of today's seminar. I'll now turn the program over to Austin to talk about the new student loan guidance that he was involved in developing and encourage people, if they have questions during the program, please put them in the Q&A. Thank you, Austin, take it away. Thanks, Don. I'm really excited to be here, and we have a really excellent panel to talk through some of the, uh, the, the new developments, and I think what is the very start of what will hopefully be a, a pretty substantial change to the way that the federal government handles these cases and the way that they're um, managed through the courts. So I thought I would sort of start by just laying out the background of what, um, what this guidance is and, and what the, the pieces that we tried to put in place are. Um, within the broader system of how the Department of Education and Department of Justice interact on this. So the, the documents were released and sort of became effective in November of, of 2022. And it was the result of really months of collaboration between the two agencies and the experts that work in both of those offices to, uh, to try to provide not just a sort of legal piece of guidance to the AUSAs, but a broader system that the Department of Education and Justice will use when processing and working through, um, through bankruptcy claims where borrowers are seeking to discharge their debts, discharge their student loan debts through, um, uh, through that process. So going into this, we really had three objectives, and I think the overall goal here was to try to make the process more streamlined and easier. So to, to sort of take that apart, we wanted to first set clear, transparent, and consistent expectations so that borrowers and debtors' attorneys understood uh, what the expectations were on the front end um, and, and, and were able to make their decisions uh, based on, on that information. The second, we wanted to really try to reduce the burden of the process. Uh, Department of Education recognizes that there's a, a really you know, large expense in going through these adversarial proceedings. And in the past, that's really been compounded by a complex and often expensive discovery process. And so I think what you see in the overall package is a very intentional um, effort to reduce those types of cost burdens um, and make sure that we're, we're, we're sort of taking this, you know, uh, uh, in, a, in a relatively straightforward uh, manner so that it can be accessible. And then lastly, uh, you know, where the facts support it, we want to increase the number of cases where the government actually agrees to a discharge on the front end uh, or, or before, you know, before a trial, 
um, and can stipulate and recommend to a judge that, that the loan should be discharged. The underlying belief here is that there's probably many more borrowers who are eligible for, uh, you know, that, that meet this undue hardship standard than we're taking advantage of it in the past. Um, and so that, you know, that kind of sets out the framework. Right now, these this sort of system applies to all of the loans that are owned by the Department of Education. That would be any direct loan, federal direct loan under the William D. Ford program. And there's a lot of the, the older sort of federally, you know, federal family education loan program loans that are also owned by the Department of Education. Um, and it's likely that uh, there'll be a dear colleague letter sometime in the future that will extend this to the full um, to the full set of federal loans, um, including the FEL, you know, the full FEL portfolio. And we've been working closely with sort of partners in, in that conversation too. So with that, let me turn it over to Judge Blumensteel and, and we can go from there. Thank you, Austin. And I share your enthusiasm for the guidance. I think it could be a game changer and affords so much relief to so many people who truly desperately need it. Um, just real quick, the statutory and legal framework that applies, everybody knows it's section 523A8. And that section provides that a discharge under chapter seven, chapter 11, chapter 12, subchapter five of chapter 11, or chapter 13 would not discharge certain types of student loans unless um, accepting that debt from discharge would impose an undue hardship on the debtor and the debtor's dependents. Also applicable here is, of course, Bankruptcy Rule 7001, subpart 6, which requires the commencement of an adversary proceeding in order to receive a determination of the dischargeability of any debt, not just student loans. And finally, for purposes of today's discussion, Bankruptcy Rule 7004B5 applies. That's the rule that governs service of process on United States government entities. The case law is also going to come as no surprise. It's been around forever. The seminal case and the one that sets out the majority rule is Bruner. It's a Second Circuit decision from 1987. It has been adopted by the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 9th, 10th, and 11th Circuits. Um, and under the Bruner test, the debtor has to prove that they cannot maintain, based on their current income and expenses, a minimal standard of living for themselves and for their dependents if they are forced to repay the given student loan. They also must prove that additional circumstances exist, uh, indicating that that state of affairs, the inability to maintain a minimal standard of living, will persist for a significant portion of the repayment period of the student loan. And finally, they have to prove that they have made a good faith effort to repay their loans. The other test that's out there is um, one that was promulgated by the Eighth Circuit in 2003 in a case called In Ray Long. And this is a totality of the circumstances test. Under that standard, the bankruptcy court must consider the debtor's past, present, and reasonably reliable future financial resources. Um, the court must calculate the debtor and the debtor's dependents' uh, reasonable living expenses. And finally, the court can consider any other relevant facts and circumstances uh, surrounding the particular debtor situation. There are a couple of circuits that in which the Circuit Court of Appeals has not uh, decided specifically what test to apply. Those include the First Circuit, um, but it is likely that the First Circuit would apply a totality of circumstances test. There is a bankruptcy appellate panel decision from the First Circuit that adopts 
the long totality of the circumstances test. The other circuit is the DC circuit, um, but there is a bankruptcy decision out of the uh, DC circuit in Ray Zook in which that court applied the Bruner test. So it's likely that the DC circuit would issue, would, would apply the Bruner test if asked to opine on that question. Um, practically speaking, there's not a whole heck of a lot of difference between these, the totality of the circumstances test and the Bruner test. Although in my mind, to my reading, uh, the Bruner test is a little more difficult. It's not quite as flexible. It requires it, the debtor to, to show that they're almost never going to be able to work themselves out of the financial hole that they're in. And the, the totality of the circumstances is a little, is a little bit more humane, to be quite honest frank about it. Um, all right. So, John, once an adversary proceeding is commenced, what happens next under the guidance? And thanks, Judge Blumensteel. So, as um, as Judge, Judge just described, um, it is the burner test that will apply, but what's different under the guidance and what we hope to uh, make everyone aware of as part of this seminar is the, the differences between what happened before the guidance and what should happen un under the guidance. The process begins just like it did before with the filing of the adversary proceeding. Once that is filed, um, the, the Department of Education will begin the process of preparing a report or, or uh, uh, on basically information about the debtor's account. It will give information about the loans that are outstanding. Uh, and importantly, it will give information about how the debtor has interacted with the department and the department servicers uh, throughout their uh, um, the, the account history. Um, and that information can be very helpful, as we'll talk about in a, in a moment, uh, when we look at especially the third prong of the Brunner test, the good faith prong. So that information will be compiled by the department and it will be provided to the AUSA. And under the guidance, that information should be shared with the debtor. So it will be provided to the debtor's counsel as well um, once the AUSA receives it. Um, the next, the, the other part of the process that differs from what occurred before is that the debtor will submit uh, an attestation form. So this is uh, for the attorneys who are handling this, you obviously want to read the guidance. That's very important. And an appendix to the guidance of uh, Appendix A is the attestation form. You can you can download, download the form from the uh, Department of Justice website. Um, it is in a fillable PDF format now. Um, and uh, it is really, I think, for the particularly the attorneys who are handling these cases, the the it it really is important to become familiar with that form, know what it's asking, the information it's asking, make sure that you get the information that you're going to need from your client uh, to fill out that form. But that will be filled out, and then that would be submitted to the AUSA. It is not filed with the court. Uh, I would strongly suggest it's not filed with the court because there is some personal identifying information in there that um, uh, you would not want to be on PACER. So that gets submitted and then the process would begin with the AUSA referring to the what's in the attestation. There may be, uh, and, and most likely will be some follow-up um, between the debtor, uh, debtor's attorney and the AUSA uh, if additional information will be needed. 
to help make a decision. But ultimately, the guidance um, the guidance is designed so that there will be consultation between uh, the AUSA, so between the Department of Justice and the Department of Education. They will consult uh, and um, a determination will be made as to whether or not there will be an offer of settlement to the debtor. Uh, that offer, as we'll see in a moment, could be a complete discharge of all the student loan obligation, or it could be an offer of a partial uh, discharge. Um, and then uh, if the parties uh, do reach an agreement, obviously it would be um, reduced to a stipulation, a stipulated judgment and submitted to the court. Um, we, we're not, you know, this is in its early stages. There aren't a whole lot of settlements yet. Um, and so we're not exactly sure how courts will uh, deal with the, these. Um, my hope is that this would be a settlement like any other settlement that is presented uh, to uh, to the court, and the court will, you know, review it, but ultimately will will enter it uh, if the parties are in agreement. If the court is satisfied that this is an agreement uh, that has been uh, reached between the parties, um, the question is whether some courts may want to go beyond the settlement and conduct some hearing. You know, we're not sure about that. I don't think that was envisioned. Um, the guidance certainly suggests that that could be an outcome. Um, but again, I, I would hope that courts would treat this like uh, settlements that are often presented to courts in adversary proceedings and readily entered by the court, unless there's some unusual circumstances. So that's the, the process. I think I was going to get started on just going through um, There, I guess there was a question, do you know if debtors council would ever expect to or should try to speak with DO, uh, Department of Education directly instead of DOJ? I don't think that's anticipated by the guidance. I think you know, the, the, DO, the DOJ, the AUSA is representing the government. They are the attorney. So I think even from just ethical standards, at least for debtors council, you would really be consulting with the AUSA um, uh, and not with a department directly. If there are issues about not getting the information that the department has provided, then that's something I think, again, you would raise with the AUSA, and, uh, but not to do it directly. Austin, I don't think you have a different view on that, but if you do, you could, you could share that, certainly. Um, no, that's exactly right. Okay, so let's get started on uh, how the guidance looks at the Brunner test and totality test from a different perspective. Um, I think, you know, in the first prong of the Brunner test, um, it, it, it focuses on present circumstances. Um, does the, you know, can the debtor uh, repay student loans and still maintain a minimum standard of living? Um, and of course, from the debtor's perspective, the answer to that, what you would hope as part of the first prong is the answer to that question is no. Well, how do you get to the determination of the first prong? Under Brunner, the parties often engaged in extensive discovery over the question of the debtor's financial circumstances, particularly if 
a medical condition is alleged as one of the circumstances. There's often a lot of discovery about that. But more importantly, it's about what the debtors spending their income on, um, you know, uh, discovery about what the debtors spent on restaurants and, and, and uh, things like that. So hopefully uh, this avoids that. Um, the, the, the anticipation under the guidance is that there may be a request for some additional information, but not the ex extensive discovery that we certainly saw before the guidance was issued. I think the other big issue with the Brunner test is that there were no objective standards as to what a minimal standard of living is. Um, some judges looked at the issues differently, as you as you would guess. Uh, judges will look at issues like that where it can be more, um, where there aren't necessarily concrete objective uh, factors. Uh, we'll look at uh, things differently. The guidance tries to change that perspective, that view, and tries to set out at least some objective factors. And it does it by making use to some extent of the means test. Uh, and so that's the IRS means test. And for uh, for uh, us as bankruptcy attorneys, this is helpful because we're accustomed to dealing with the means tests already in bankruptcy. Um, it is not exactly the same way that we would fill out uh, the means test form in a Chapter 7 case, but the concepts are there. And it, it does um, look at um, uh, uh, these more objective factors. So for the national um, IRS standards, uh, those are the ones, um, you know, that are looking at, at things um, like clothing, um, food, uh, personal health care. In that situation, the debtor isn't can uh, will uh, be able to use the same dollar amounts that are in the IRS standards. So those are what is factored into as the debtor's expenses. Uh, what the debtor attests to on the form is that their expenses do not exceed the IRS national standards. If they do, and there could be a situation, particularly um, for food, for example, if the debtor has a medical condition that requires them to eat a special diet, there could be uh, uh, an ability to ask the AUSA to consider a higher amount than a national standard. But at a minimum, the debtor is allowed effectively what is the IRS national standard for that category. For local standards, and here we're talking about housing and transportation, the debtor, unlike in the means test, the debtor doesn't use the actual standard amount. What the debtor uses is their actual expenses for those items. And the IRS standards serve as sort of a benchmark that um, the that um, the debtor will be entitled to allow, allow or take a deduction for their actual expenses as long as they don't exceed the IRS standards. And once again, if they do exceed the IRS standards, there is an opportunity in the form to explain why the debtor has higher expenses. And that's probably most likely to come up in transportation, where at least in some parts of the country, the uh, IRS allowance is fairly low and maybe isn't considering the distance that the debtor has to travel to work and, and high expense of uh, fuel at this point. Um, what's really kind of uh, very unique about the guidance, I would say, is that it does also contemplate that the debtor can request that the AOSA consider expenses that have not yet been incurred. So this is a situation where the debtor has really been 
living extremely frugally uh, and has been really foregoing expenses that really they need to. You know, there's their car needs maintenance. Their they their home needs a new roof. Things that are just um, that that uh, or uh, there's an. Ex By the way, um, the guidance has an example, uh, which is Appendix B to the guidance of a filled out attestation form. It's really helpful. I encourage everyone to read it. And there, it was a, the debtor who. It, it's a hypothetical case, but what the debtor in that case is a um, woman who um, has a young child and she, and she has been living in her parents you know home in the basement because she couldn't afford to buy to get an apartment on her own and um, the the guidance recognizes that she could ask the AOSA to consider the fact that she really needs to get her own apartment her parents aren't going to be able to tolerate this anymore she needs to get her own apartment and so she does actually claim uh, an expense for what which she would need to get an apartment, uh, the monthly amount for a rental. And at least in the hypothetical example, the IAOSA did consider that as a factor that um, should be considered. So that is um, a really uh, big change, uh, I would say. That's not something that, I mean, there actually were some cases uh, under the Brunner test where courts would look at that issue that, you know, debtor has been living with a parent or something. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was not uh, it was not guaranteed. You know, there are a lot of courts who would not consider that factor. So um, it is very helpful uh, that it's in there. The other thing, just very quickly, because we have so much to cover, but um, the other factor for this first prong is you're looking at what all the debtor's expenses are, you're comparing that to their income, and then you're considering what is left over, what is their net income. And and the, the question is whether that net income is sufficient to make payments on the student loans. And what is different under the guidance is in the past, if the debtor was eligible for an income-driven repayment plan, and this was particularly true for very low-income debtors who um, really would probably never be able to repay their student loans, but because they could go on IDR and they might have a monthly payment under the IDR of $0 or $10 a month, Courts would say, well, there really isn't a need for a bankruptcy discharge. Um, and uh, what's more, it, 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 you sort of fail the first prong of the test because your monthly payment is really is, is $5 or, or zero. Um, what the um, guidance uh, instructs is that the AUSA should consider what would be the standard payment amount on the loans. It's not what would be under the income-driven repayment plan. So that is critically important. There is information in our materials about how the debtor might be, or debtor's attorney might be able to determine what the standard repayment amount is. That should be in the Department of Education's report that's provided to uh, to the debtor. But if you're thinking about bringing these one of one of these cases and you're doing your due diligence before filing and you want to know what that standard repayment is, there is a repayment calculator on the Department of Education website that you can use to try to get an estimate. It won't be perfect, but it'll get you uh, fairly close. So when you have done this fi this financial determination as to what is the net debtor's income, if that shows that the debtor has no income to repay 
the standard repayment monthly amount, then you move on. The debtor has effectively passed that first prime. If it shows that there's some payment ability, then the AOSA might consider offering a partial discharge. And obviously, if it shows that the debtor can make the, the full monthly standard repayment, then the AOSA is not going to recommend a discharge. Austin, I think you were going to take over with yeah. prime two. Thanks, John. Um, so once we've established that the borrower has a current inability to repay, the case law directs us to look at their future ability to, to repay. Basically, will their uh, current difficulties or their current financial situation persist such that you know we think they're they're they'll be unable to pay going forward? And in some ways, you know, as you move march through these prongs. Um, more there, there's like they, they almost beg more and more subjectivity. And so we're really trying to push back against that in, in what this guidance does. And so whereas in the first prong, we use the IRS standards for considering expenses and income here, the department developed a set of presumptions such that if a borrower or a loan meets one of these presumptions, we will just assume that or presume uh, that they uh, that they their their future ability to pay will will not improve. So those presumptions are that one the debtor is sixty five years or older. So if the borrower is already over sixty five, they can't pay today. Are we're we're going to presume that they don't have you know some big lucrative job coming down the coming down the corner. Uh, and so we'll presume that their situation is going to, to stay the same. Um, alternatively, the a borrower that has a disability or a chronic injury that impacts um, their income potential can also serve as a presumption. Now, this is um, probably the most uh, flexible of the of the presumptions because you know we're trying to strike a balance between uh, providing um, you know. Uh, sort of recognizing that disabilities and chronic injuries will limit borrowers' future earning potential without being prescriptive about exactly what those types of medical conditions are, right? Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more towards the end about how to approach those situations, but that's that's the, the second presumption here. The, the third would be that the debtor has been unemployed for five of the last 10 years. Um, and uh, the, the next one would be that the borrower um, has failed to obtain the degree for which they procured the loan. So if you went to school and you didn't complete that program. And then lastly, if the loan has been in repayment, basically any status other than in school for more than 10 years, we will also presume that your financial circumstances won't change. And I think, you know, these are pretty broad and capture a lot of uh, common situations for borrowers uh, that that are having difficulty paying their loans over over a long period of time. It is not an exclusive uh, or exhaustive list. There is flexibility within the guidance for borrowers and their attorneys to, you know, make the case that there's some other standard or some other reason why um, the borrower's future circumstances are unlikely to change. It's just that in this situation, we will presume that it's true, and unless there is some sort of articulable concrete thing that would suggest that there is actually some major change to income coming, we would set, we would consider the second prong satisfied. Um, there's the, um, 
the, the way that the guidance talks about that is a sort of concrete uh, factual circumstances. And it's pretty clear that that sort of conjecture and the type of subjective analysis that we may have seen in the past uh, isn't really sufficient here. Um, the last thing I'll say uh, in this section um, is that there, there is this distinction between the borrowers who uh, did not complete their program, right? They didn't get the degree that they were seeking and borrowers who are not working in their field. The, the, the former is one of the presumptions and sort of gets you through the gate of, um, of, the, sec of the second prong. The latter is not a presumption, but is, a, is an important detail that can sort of be a part of a broader argument about why the borrower's financial circumstances are unlikely to change. So we've seen you know, a number of, uh, of these attestations come through where there's a focus on the, the line of work that the borrower is working in. And you know, that doesn't get you the presumption, but it is sort of a, a good starting place to add other concrete uh, sort of facts to to support the second prong analysis. Um, I'll let uh, John take over for our third uh, third prong here. Yeah, thanks, Austin. So I'm going to look at the um, the good faith prong of the Bruner test, and also is a consideration under uh, the totality circumstances. Um, you know, I, I'd say before the guidance, and if for those of you who've tried these cases often the debtor would be able to satisfy the first prong. It was always the second and third prongs that really were the most tricky, and particularly in some parts of the country where, you know, there's the the, the case law talked in the second prong about the certainty of hopelessness. What Austin just described is really a different perspective, a different way to look at that second prong. And in the third prong, we often saw a really mix of, of opinions. Um, obviously, the one of the critical issues is, has the debtor actually made payments on the loan? But even there, we saw uh, before the guidance, we, we would see uh, a number of what I would consider good decisions in the sense that a court would say that there are cases even when the debtor had made no payments where um, the the way to analyze that issue was to say at any point during the repayment period, did the borrower have an ability to pay and didn't? And so there were definitely cases where the court said, uh, I think that the debtor satisfied the third prong even though they never made a payment because they never had an ability to pay. Now that wasn't universal, but there were definitely cases, even in circuits with very difficult, you know, strict case law where courts would make that finding. But there were other factors that would sort of creep into the third faith prong. It wasn't always just about whether the debtor made payments, uh, particularly in the past 10, 20, 15 years, a lot of the focus from the parties litigating, and especially the department and in the uh, um, non-federal cases, the, the uh, um, particularly um, the ones not held by the department um, where ECMC was involved, there was often a lot of litigation about whether the debtor made uh, was on an income-driven repayment plan, made effort to be on an IDR. Um, 
And, and, and the worst cases, and I have to say, these often were not being raised by the Department of Education. There were often other litigants in these cases, but they would also go into facts about the debtor's lifestyle. Um, you know, you can read the cases where ECMC would argue that the debtor shouldn't get a discharge because they had too many children. They should have been, you know, they should have uh, been paying their student loans rather than having, uh, you know, for children. So that's the kind of um, argument that really has no place, I would say, under the guidance. The guidance tries to take a different view uh, to, again, tries to establish more objective factors, uh, more uniformity to the to the evaluation of the uh, of this uh, of this prong. So there are list objective, a list of objective factors. And of course, uh, it's important for the debtor's attorney to consider those, to be familiar with what they are. One of them is making a payment. And I stress that is the wording in the guidance. It's making a payment. It's not saying making substantial payments. It's saying making a payment. So um, another factor is applying for deferment or forbearance. So anytime the debtor has applied for a forbearance, um, uh, uh, or a deferment, uh, that would be considered an, a, a factor uh, establishing a good faith. The exception is uh, forbearances which are uh, in school. So while the debtor is in school, they would get a forbearance. Those in school or grace period deferments are excluded. Applying for an income-driven repayment plan um, is a, a factor that is uh, could be considered. Uh, but we'll come back to that in a second because it doesn't, the, the flip side of that is not true that if you failed to apply for uh, uh, an income driven repayment plan, that doesn't exclude you from establishing good faith. Applying for a consolidate, federal consolidation loan, responding to outreach uh, by a, a department servicer or collector, engaging meaningfully with the Department of Education or its loan servicer regarding payment options, forbearance and deferments or loan consolidation, engaging meaningfully with a third party they believed would assist them in managing their student loan. Those are the objective factors. And I, I think I mentioned earlier, um, and hopefully Austin, you could share a little bit more information about what the department will be doing on this, but our understanding is that the department will be considering whether they have any record or evidence of uh, of the debtor um, satisfying one of those objective factors, and it should be in the report. So that is something you do want to look at to see whether it's there. Now, if it's not there, that doesn't mean the debtor hasn't done it. I think the department will admit that their records are not going to be completely uh, complete. So, you know, there could be uh, examples of the debtor actually engaging with a servicer that aren't going to re be reflected in the department's uh, records. Um, the um, the other things that are considered under the guidance, just like it is under the under the case law, is that um, there will be a, a, a consideration by the AUSA as to whether the debtor has. Uh, this is language you find in a lot of the cases. The debtor has minimized expenses um, and, and uh, maximized their income. So those are definitely things that um, you would want to consider. Um, I don't think it's going to be like some of the case law where courts have said that, well, the debtor's working in a field 
that um, I mean, the, the the classic case on this is the Fifth Circuit decision of the the you know the cello player. He's, he was a he w- uh, was employed by uh, the te- Texas Philharmonic Orchestra, and his income wasn't very good. And you know, basically, the court said you should have chosen a different profession and gotten a better paying job. I don't think that's the kind of thing we're going to be facing, at least under this guidance. But nevertheless. That concept of you know maximizing income uh, is is something. If the debtor was making conscious choices to avoid maximizing their income, that could hurt them. Um, so evidence of that could could certainly uh, hurt them. But let's get back to the issue of the income driven plans because this is where many of the courts have and parties have in the past. Uh, a lot of the case law is just focused on this issue, including a very recent case uh, in the District of Massachusetts, where um, uh, the court felt that um, the you know the debtor could have just participated in an, in an income-driven repayment plan, or maybe didn't uh, didn't uh, access that when when they when they should have. Um, the the guidance recognizes, and it's really worth reading. The guidance recognizes that th- there could be situations where the debtor um, maybe never applied because there were reasons why uh, they uh, they there were good reasons why they did not even try to get on an IDR, um, and or that they may have tried to get on an IDR and were not put on it because of the failings essentially of the of the 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 educational programs themselves that the department the you know, the guidance recognizes that uh the department has not always um done a great job essentially and you know they're doing a much better job now and they've really made some great improvements to those programs but i think there's a recognition that there could be debtors in the past who did actually try to enroll in these programs and didn't get on because servicers failed to give them proper information or there are other roadblocks for them accessing these programs so that's very, very helpful and sort of counters some of the arguments that I think we have seen in the past. And the guidance actually even provides some examples of what would be considered acceptable explanations. Uh, yeah, I'll just look at and read a few of them. The debtor was denied access to or diverted or discouraged from using an income-driven uh, repayment plan and instead relied on forbearance and deferment. And we certainly saw a lot of that with some of the department servicers who would rather than engage with a borrower about getting them on an IDR, would just put them on a forbearance. Uh, there are a lot of different reasons why that happened, um, but it clearly did happen. And so that could be a good explanation as to why they never accessed an IDR. Uh, the debtor may have received inaccurate, incomprehensible, or incomplete information about the merits of being an, on an IDR. Uh, the debtor had a plausible belief that an IDR would not have meaningfully improved their financial situ- situation. Um, the debtor was unaware um, uh, about the availability of the programs. Uh, and then there's another example of uh, where permitted under applicable law, the debtor was uh, w- was concerned about the potential tax consequences of an IDR. So the, the I think what, what really uh, is significant is that the guidance, there's a recognition in the guidance um, that this issue of participation in IDR is, is not the, final answer when it comes to good faith. And in fact, 
the the failure of the debtor to engage on an IDR um, uh, can be explained uh, in in as part of the process. And, and uh, for debtors' counsel, I really recommend that you look at the guidance form, uh, the attestation form. There are there are places in that form to provide those explanations, and you really do want to do that. It, um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about sort of um, best practices in a, in a moment. But um, you know the the old view about more you know more t detail is is better than less. It's not always true that that's helpful. But here I think providing the detail certainly is is helpful. I think we're gonna Watson. You're gonna touch on uh, debtors' assets. Yeah, uh, this will be quick. So I think the point here in the, is to explain that the assets that are exempt under various state law provisions are not considered exempt under this analysis, that we would do, uh, we, that we're required to consider debtors' assets in the undue hardship analysis. But the guidance tries to make it clear that we shouldn't give, like, we, we shouldn't give dispositive weight to those assets that are not easily convertible to cash. So people's homes, um, people's primary vehicles, the retirement savings, um, those types of assets are ones that um, we recognize would only be required to be liquidated in extreme measures. And at least in my time there, we hadn't come across a situation as we've been seeing these under the new guidance where that would have been um, would have been required. So it's, you know, it, it's certainly contemplatable that, you know, we, and, and we want to, and we request asset information in the, in the attestation, but it should be the, the far exception to the rule. Um, the last thing I'll say is we're kind of wrapping up this section on like what the guidance says in terms of the, the, the case law is that it's a relatively long document and goes to lengths to be um, to be to provide a substantive analysis here in in the hope that the stipulations and the settlements that come out of this are are taken seriously you know that we are you know the goal is to follow the law and to you know to follow the the um and 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 to identify cases where there has been uh, where there would be an undue hardship if these debts are not discharged. And the point is so that all of the parties take this seriously, right? So that when we when the government steps forward and says, you know, we think that that this is satisfied and proposes to stipulate to a discharge, that that it's recognized that it's because it's meeting those standards and not, you know, not sort of a, an effort to get around what the bankruptcy code requires um, requires here. And I think that's a, a good transition to talk about the full versus partial discharge because there are some situations where. You know where the second and third prong are pretty clearly met, uh, and the first prong in terms of the income, uh, as as John mentioned before, leave um, uh, uh, leave you know show some discretionary income, and I'll, I'll turn it back over to John to talk through the uh, full versus partial discharge piece. Yeah, so if there is some repayment ability, this is where um, the AOSA might come back with an offer of a. Uh, partial uh, settlement. And I, I think at least I, I, I'll present this more from the view of debtors counsel, which is when you, if you do get that offer of a partial settlement, um, I think there, there's a, uh, there's a sort of a initial reaction might be, gee, this is great. The debtor has $150,000 of student loans and the AOSA is offering a settlement of $25,000. 
this is really great. And, and, and it, yes, that, you know, when we think about settlements and, and so forth uh, in normal litigation, uh, you know, that does sound like a great offer. But I do think, you know, for the debtors attorneys, you really need to make sure that there is that true repayment ability. Was the analysis on prong run prong one done correctly? Because you don't want a debtor to be agreeing to uh, to a $25,000 partial discharge settlement when they really don't have an ability to repay that because honestly it's not going to improve their life you know if they uh if 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 you know they're still going to be facing collection and so forth um so uh make sure that that is you know if the analysis is right if they really do have repayment ability then sure that could be a great settlement but it's really important to 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 really not just instantly say, okay, yes, this is great. Um, to really do that analysis and make sure um, that uh, it, it was done correctly and not reach for a, a quick quick settlement. The other thing is we probably won't be seeing these, but I have seen some examples of discharges, partial discharges that were conditional where uh, the debtor would agree to a repayment agreement for the amount that's non-dischargeable and that um, the, the agreement would provide that the full amount of the debt would uh, spring back if the debtor failed to make payments on the uh, portion that was agreed upon. I, I think that that is something um, I would not feel comfortable entering into with many debtors, at least that I've represented. Um, there are just too many circumstances that, I mean, again, there could be facts where that might be appropriate, but uh, again, something to really look at closely before you enter into that kind of agreement. And that actually might be one where the court might want to be involved too, and might um, might actually have questions about whether the settlement uh, is appropriate. So, and, and with that, since I'm just talking about court, I am going to turn this back to Judge Blumensteel. Thank you. We have a question that I'd like to um, address before I move on to um, the impact of the guidance on the deadlines that are triggered with the commencement of an adversary proceeding. And the question is, can you discuss the good faith test for parents who have co-signed or taken out parent loans? Um, do you think parents will be treated somewhat differently under the guidance? Can, can anybody help there? Uh, I'm happy to take a first crack if that's fine. So, um, the guidance does not distinguish between parent or non-parent borrowers. Um, and so, you know, for parent plus loans, um, which would be the, yeah, so, so for the parent plus portfolio, all of the same analysis would still apply. You know, I think there's some fact patterns you can imagine that um, the department just hasn't gotten and might be, uh, might sort of trigger some of the rebuttable presumptions. So you could imagine borrowers taking out debt who are 75 years old and then seeking to discharge it one year later. Um, in that kind of situation, we may want to look closer at their future ability to pay. But again, the fact that we let them take it out at 75 doesn't change the future ability to pay analysis. So I think those are just ones to be cautious of. It doesn't mean it's not facilitated for uh, in the guidance. Um, but in terms of like some assumption that a, a family member would pay, there's really no contemplation of that here. I think the income and expense categories look to your household, but if you're, you know, if the people that you took out loans on behalf of are not living in your household, then it wouldn't factor into your income or the expectation. Okay. Um, here's some more questions that are kind of relevant to this discussion. 
are retirement accounts considered easily convertible to cash? And does it matter if the retirement accounts were funded with voluntary contributions? Uh, typically, retirement accounts will require some type of penalty to be paid. I think that makes it not as easily convertible to cash as, say, just like a, a, a CD or a, a, you know, some stock you own or, or something along those lines. So the, you know, the, the guidance does caution around retirement, you know, looking at retirement accounts and, um, you know, mo most retirement accounts are not large enough to tip a threshold that I think would be threatening. But John, it looks like you, you probably have a lot more experience here than. No, I was just going to add that I think the age of the debtor could also be a factor if the debtor is close to retirement. I think they certainly have a good argument that they should not be required to, to withdraw those funds. Yeah. And so uh, talking again about um, family members and, and is, is the question is, is the co-signer release any part of the discussion regarding family members? I'm not sure I understand the question. Do you guys have a better understanding? I, I think so. So co-signer release is typically not something your co-signers are typically not something you see in the federal portfolio. It's more on the private side. Got it. Um, and and so like it, it wouldn't apply to, to most of our loans. As I understand it from where I sit at the Bureau now, companies will typically treat the borrowers on, on co-sign loans individually. So if you're the co-signer, you know, you can... And and you you know successfully make a, a adverse act you know um, uh, uh, say adverse action uh, uh, adversarial case that this should be discharged then you would be removed from the note but I, I don't know if that's how it plays out that's that's what they tell us in policies and procedures but um, on the federal side you just don't see cosine loans got it okay so let's talk about how the guidance impacts the deadlines and the actual mechanics of an adversary proceeding so is everybody here knows. Um, once an adversary proceeding is commenced, several deadlines are triggered. The first of those is the answer date. And under Bankruptcy Rule 7012A, the United States has to file an answer or a responsive pleading to a complaint within 35 days after issuance of the summons. All right. Um, then you have the Rule 16 and Rule 26 deadlines. Under Civil Rule 16B2, which applies in adversary proceedings in bankruptcy court under Bankruptcy Rule 7016A, um, the court is required to issue a scheduling order as soon as practicable. Um, but unless the judge finds good cause for delay, the judge must issue a scheduling order within the earlier of 90 days after any defendant has been served with the complaint or 60 days after any defendant has appeared. The Rule 26 deadlines are as follows. Um, under Civil Rule 26F1, um, the parties to an adversary proceeding must convene a discovery conference. They must meet and confer about certain issues relevant to discovery at least 21 days prior to an initial scheduling conference or the deadline for issuing the scheduling order under Rule 16. And the parties must discuss the issues that are described in Civil Rule 26 F2 and promulgate what is known as a discovery plan. Um, under Rule 26 F2, they have to file that discovery plan with the court um, within 14 days after discuss uh, convening their discovery conference. 
And then finally, under Rule 26A1C, the parties have to exchange the material that is described under Civil Rule 26A1A within 14 days after discussing their or conducting their discovery conference. So as John and Austin described, there's a whole lot of information that the parties to one of these adversary proceedings have to exchange. Um, and none of that can happen until the adversary proceeding is, is actually commenced. So the first concern that struck me when I was called upon to sort of figure out how our court was going to respond to the guidance was, well, what do we what do we do to accommodate that process, right? We didn't want the litigants to have to spend resources gathering the information that the attestation and the guidance requires to be shared, both on the debtor side and on the Department of Education and Department of Justice side, um, and also try to be to, to spend resources, you know, conducting the discovery conference, making the initial disclosures and, and things like that. We wanted it seemed to make sense from our court's perspective to allow the parties to focus on this um, cooperative process that the guidance contemplates rather than, you know, gearing up the litigation machine. Um, and, you know, it, it benefits the court because I'm not preparing for a scheduling conference and issuing a scheduling order where in an adversary proceeding that may be resolved by way of a stipulated judgment, which is what, you know, the end goal of this guidance clearly is. Um, so what our court decided to do was to simply kick all of those Rule 16 and Rule 26 deadlines down the road. Now, our we, and we promulgated guidelines and a, a draft form of stipulation and a form of order approving the stipulation that um, it does the following. Um, after the filing of, of a complaint and service of process, the parties will complete a stipulation that they then file with the court that extends the responsive pleading deadline, the, the deadline for answering the complaint or filing a motion to dismiss um, by 120 days. So it goes from 35 days after the issuance of the summons to that period plus 120 days. And that's, you know, a good five months for the parties to share the information that's called upon or called for by the guidance and the attestation and hopefully reach some agreement as to the resolution of the entire adversary proceeding. Um, it continues the initial scheduling conference to a date no sooner than 60 days after the extended responsive pleading deadline. Um, it instructs the parties to calculate the deadlines in Rule 26, so the deadline for exchanging the initial disclosures, for convening the discovery conference, and for filing the discovery plan, um, it, that is, that. so the stipulation provides that those deadlines should be calculated from the date of the continued scheduling conference. So the scheduling, the, the answer date gets kicked out for 35 days plus 120 days, 60 days after that point, the court will convene the initial scheduling conference and the parties are to calculate the deadlines in rule 26 from that continued date. And then finally, it incorporates a finding of good cause for delay in issuing the scheduling order, giving yours truly a little cover um, in case anybody's, you know, minding that, that deadline, you know, that I'm subject to. Um, the order 
uh, again, it's in your materials that approves the stipulation um, is also, you know, part of this package that that we have shared with our bar. And if the parties are able to resolve the proceeding um, by the processes contemplated by the guidance, they simply upload a stipulated judgment. Um, there's another advantage to proceeding in this way, and it's 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 one that benefits our clerk's office, right? They can still process an adversary proceeding according to their standard operating procedure. They still issue the summons. The summons still has the same de- dates in it. The um, They issue the initial order that describes the Rule 26 deadlines. Um, so it doesn't upset the apple cart from the, the clerk's office perspective, which frankly is pretty helpful. Um, it's just that simple stipulation that extends all these deadlines out by what I hope is enough time um, to give the parties the chance to do what they're supposed to do under the guidance. Um, and, you know, as I said, our court has promulgated guidelines that, uh, you know, explain all of this and lay out um, what the gui- guidance is supposed to accomplish. Um, other, you know, you might try if your court hasn't adopted specific procedures, you might, you know, float the stipulation to see if your judge is receptive to it. Um, Cause I think it makes sense from everybody's perspective. Um, the guidance does contain a statement as to um, the court's authority when it comes to approving any sort of stipulated judgment that the parties might be able to, um, you know, agree to. And it instructs the DOJ to advise debtors that although the Department of Justice and the Department of Education may stipulate to facts relevant to undue hardship and recommend to the court that a finding of undue hardship is appropriate, that the stipulation or the party's recommendation does not bind the court and that the court still retains the authority to render its own determination whether the debtor has met the standard for an undue hardship discharge as required by Section 523A8. You know, I can't speak for every bankruptcy judge in the country. I know that I would be very receptive um, and I'm always receptive to adversary proceedings that are resolved by way of settlement. Um, And, you know, so there is no way to guarantee that a judge is going to go along with this. But what this guidance does provide for the courts is consistency. Um, It is no longer sort of a subjective test or subjective exercise where you're digging into, you know, whether the debtor had children, whether they should have chosen to play the cello as a profession. I mean, this removes that and um, imposes in its place consistent standards that apply to these determinations. And I think I hope that that will go a long way toward making me and my colleagues comfortable with the outcome that is contemplated by the guidance. That's as much help as I can give you there. So well, best practices, say, yeah, go okay. ahead. I can just say, just boom, Steele, I appreciate those comments. Uh, th- that's really helpful. It does, it does uh, remind me though, that I don't think we mentioned and I really say this for the debtors' attorneys here is that um, to, to be to understand that this is a document that guides settlement. So it's it's between you and the AUSA. Please don't be arguing that the what's in this guidance is binding on the court. Not not right. in terms of whether they 
accept the settlement. That's a different issue. But if you're if you have if a settlement isn't reached and you need to litigate the case in front of the court, you really can't be saying the judge needs to follow this guidance. It's not it wasn't for that purpose. And so don't try it. I think you'll not get a very receptive response or very uh, helpful response if you try to do that. It was that is not the purpose of this guidance. OK, so very quickly, we're going to move to uh, well, we I think I've run out of time, but um, Don, uh, where where should we go with? Uh, I think we're done. I think see what you can do, and when you disappear, you disappear. But I say <laughs> go with it. <laughs> well, actually, the one I'll turn over to Austin. The one thing I'd say in terms of issues, like everything else we do in bankruptcy, timing is important. So for pre-filing considerations. Think about some of those objective factors, the presumptions. If you have a debtor who's 64, or you know, it's it's just about to turn 65, maybe you wait. If the debtor is the loan has been in payment status for uh, for nine months and uh, nine years and 11 months, don't file it until it's in payment status for at least 10 years. So think about the timing issues, Austin. Thanks. Yeah, just to build on that quickly, from what I've seen. I was surprised at how many of these attestations we got where the borrower failed the first prong. So like do the math equation and figure out what that first prong looks like. That'll, that'll save a bunch of time. Um, in, in the broader scheme of it, um, I just want to thank everybody who's been a part of this process. Like we get so few of these to start with. We're seeing that baseline tick up. And like, I, I just appreciate the receptiveness and that, that debtors councils have been sort of taking us at our word that this is a, a different uh, mindset and a different process for handling these. And we're going to keep sort of working through them in that way. Um, so there's one question here about chapter seven or chapter 13. Yeah. Um, I'm typing an answer say, to that right now. Oh, perfect. Then I'll skip it. Uh, and um, I guess the last piece is that be mindful that different loans can have different outcomes. It is not unusual in the context of parent parent borrowers, for example, to have a parent loan that may not be eligible because it's very new and their older loans may have hit the 10-year presumption for prong two. So be mindful that you could see different outcomes for different loans under the guidance. Um, and that shouldn't dissuade you. It just, just be clear going into it what those, those outcomes might be. Um, but that's the, that's the abbreviated uh, practice notes I got. And we do have a detailed version of this outline that we've been using to guide our discussion today in your material. So if you want to refer to any points specifically, you're able to do that. Yeah, I was going to encourage everybody. The materials are really um, uh, have, a, have a wealth of information in them. And so I would encourage everybody to uh, take a look at those. I want to thank Judge uh, Blumensteel and um, Austin and John for participating today. Thank you, everyone else. And um, we're all set. So um, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everybody.